Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. Once again, I'm coming live from my den under the stairs at Dirk Towers here in Bolton, UK. I'm utterly and completely surrounded by my stuff. If I move myself slightly backwards, there's the latest addition to the den. It's a turntable, a record player. I've been rediscovering my long-playing records from back in the time when they provided the soundtrack to our role-playing sessions. I still have them all here. Close to the Edge by Yes, the Sentinel by Marillion Wannabe's Palace, and the Haunting Medal by Pink Floyd. Following the previous podcast, where we talked about Moorcock's influence on Hawkwind and vice versa, I've created a Spotify playlist, Wondrous Stories, which is a collaborative list, so you can add tracks to it. Reach for the link in the show notes. I'd love to hear what you were listening to when the dice were rattling over your table. Here on my left is my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. <clears throat> ah, this time she is Margiana, her most celebrated role in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, 1973. Certainly the role that brought her sparkling acting talents to my attention as a young boy. One of the greatest moments of cinema history is her confrontation with the animated statue of Kali. Six arms barbed with scimitars lurching forward. Brilliant. On my right is my great library of tabletop RPGs and my grognard files. I'm going to reach down... And I'm going to grab a big one. It's Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I'm going to leave the OSR file up there for a later date. And I'm going to leave the supplements and modules for D&D for another episode too. Now, we're going to do this over three parts and concentrate on the rules. This first part is titled The Dungeon Master's Guide. The next part will be the player's handbook, and the final part will be the monster manual. If you've been following these podcasts so far, you'll realise that the Armchair Adventurers, my RPG club, are Chaosian fanboys. But that doesn't mean that we didn't enjoy what TSR, TM, had to offer with D&D, TM, back in the day. But as we'll explain... The circumstances around our relationship with D&D, TM, were a bit weird. We've gone on and developed a mutually respectful relationship with the game that was, is, and always will be the shorthand name for the whole hobby. But it's taken time for us to come to terms with the game and its dominance. There's something within us that's deliberately contrarian, so if we're told that D&D... TM is the premium game against which all others must be judged, then we instinctively took against it, TM. However, this is the story of truth and reconciliation, 
how we came to hate, love, hate, and love D&D TM all over again, and how we came to get over that trademark situation, TM. Uh, that's the last I'll do of it, because I'm annoying myself now. As you come to hear, our personal experience of playing the game has been blighted by power-crazed dungeon masters and power gamers. It's an interesting question that we pose. Does D&D create demented players, or do demented players play D&D? But there is an arc to this story, so please bear with it. We really wanted to love D&D, but everything seemed to conspire against us. In this first part, at Daily Dwarf from Twitter will open box to tell his story of how he started playing RPGs through D&D. Then Blythe will join me for the first part of Open Box, our earliest memories of D&D, and following that, at Daily Dwarf will introduce the first part of his selections from the best articles from White Dwarf. This will be followed by the third Open Box, how Blythe and I reconnected with D&D in the noughties. At Daily Dwarf is back with some more articles from the magazine before we return to His Honour, Judge Blythe, to look at the Dungeon Master's Guide in more detail. His pernickety reading of the D&D rules are what earned Blythe a reputation of being a rules lawyer in the first place. At Daily Dwarf will conclude his choice of articles from the magazine. And at the end of it, I'll give a taste of what's coming and bring you up to date with the latest on our other supporting projects. Now it's customary at this part of all podcasts to get the apologies in early to neutralise possible criticism. Firstly, I have to say that this part is a big one. Uh, it's, uh, it's not going to fit on a C90 tape cassette. I've cut bits out, but it's still big. So take your time. Don't feel like you have to do it in one go. Also, I went on a family holiday and a hideous brew infected the subtropical paradise at Centre Parks and uh, I contracted Thunderlung, a chronic cough. I'm much better now, but there's a couple of times when I might make your ears pop. Sorry about that. I don't think the infection can pass through podcasts, but you might want to take precautions. Right, let's start up and let's see how At Daily Dwarf was introduced to the hobby and why he saw the magazine White Dwarf. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Section 1. Daily Dwarf opens the box. So, finally, on the Grognard files, we come to the £800 gorilla itself. Dungeons and Dragons. The game that started it all, and the reason why White Dwarf magazine exists. Unlike the armchair adventurers up in Bolton, D&D and I go back a long way. It all started with my brother. My brother was, and still is, a big fan of Doctor Who, but I don't hold that against him. Anyway, for his birthday one year, he got the Doctor Who board game from some company called Games Workshop. He always liked games with plenty of gamey bits, so this new one was right up his street. 
a colourful board with lots of cards and tokens. It went down a storm. And at the bottom of the box there was a flyer for another game, something called Dungeons and Dragons. This sounded intriguing, so for next Christmas my brother asked for this as a present. Unfortunately, D&D was not my brother's cup of tea. There wasn't even a board for heaven's sake. And look at the size of that rule book. He declared the game unplayable, far too complex. And so the D&D box set sat unopened and unloved on a shelf in my brother's bedroom, slowly gathering dust. Fast forward to the summer of 1981. I'd recently finished reading The Hobbit and just started on The Lord of the Rings. For some reason, my brother's unwanted game popped into my head. Dungeons and Dragons? Well, there's a dragon in The Hobbit, so it might be about the same sort of thing. I was curious, and, if I'm honest, there was also a chance of a bit of one-upmanship over my brother. I bet I could understand those rules. I took the box from the shelf, and, and I opened it. There are better written RPG rule books than the Holmes basic D&D rules, but they'll never take its place in my heart. That first read-through of the rules was truly memorable experience. J. Eric Holmes put down a large box of fireworks in my imagination, and then he threw in a lit match. This was amazing. Amazing! Ideas fizzed around my brain. This was just like the stories I loved to read. But I got to control the action. And what a concept it was, sending a group of adventurers armed with swords, cunning and magic, down into the depths of the earth to battle fabulous monsters. Where my brother saw complexity, I saw endless possibilities. I got a group together at school and appointed myself as dungeon master. There was no prime directive in Cardiff, but it was my game, so I was the dungeon master. What's that? My brother? Oh no, this game was now mine. We played it, we loved it, the game was like a drug and I wanted more. And despite those early games being great fun, I had lots of questions not answered in the rule book. Where could I go for more? Well, at the bottom of the basic D&D box set was a flyer for a magazine. Games Workshop's RPG magazine. White Dwarf. Section 2. The Armchair Adventurers. Open Box. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Here we are. We're doing Open Box. And this is the bit of the programme where we go back in time to the point where we first encountered the games we're talking about. Now, when it comes to D&D, we have four ages, really, don't we? So we're going to have to open the box four times. Yes, we are. Yeah, we are. And and it's not really open. It's open boxes rather than open box, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and not all of them are in boxes. They weren't in boxes, which is part of the problem, as we'll see. Yeah. They were books, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, advanced D&D. Don't forget, it's advanced D&D. Advanced, and I think we need to refer to it as advanced D&D. We do, don't we? Because <laughs> us mere mortals yes. uh, struggled with the concept of advanced D&D. Of course. But we'll come to that. 
So in the four ages, I mean, it brings us right up to the present day. So we've only just started having uh, a game of the fifth edition. And so by the end of um, this episode, so in part three, I think we'll open the box on the fifth edition. So we've started doing the uh, Minds of Fandelva, which is the starter set adventure. Early thoughts? Well, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was great. Um, we we have a, as as we will find out, as people will find out, we've had a difficult relationship with D and D, or advanced D and D, as we have to call it. <laughs> um, we've had a difficult relationship with it over the years, and it's brought us into contact with some uh, colourful characters. I think yes. <laughs> is a polite way of putting it. <laughs> but um, I really like Fifth Edition. I, I felt I felt that Fifth Edition was what I always wanted D and D to be. When we were playing D and D, yeah, and D and D never really was. Yeah, there was a number of um, disappointments with D and D, difficulties with D and D. Yeah, but playing Fifth Edition really felt like what I wanted it to be way back when we started playing D and D. Well, let's go right back. Let's go right back okay. to 1981. Yeah, in 1981. The Armchair Adventurers formed. We started yes. playing, and as we've said on previous podcasts, we played RuneQuest and Traveller more or less in rotation. Yes. However, there was a third member of our party back then. There was. Simon. Simon. Now, we should explain that Simon was a good friend of ours. However, he was different than us because uh, we went to comprehensive school. We did. He went to a grammar school. Mm. Um, but later on, uh, we had a, a ZX Spectrum. He had a Vic Twenty because it felt superior. Um, he was heavily into Tolkien, yeah. whereas we were fans of Robert E. Howard and Moorcock. Yeah. So we had different perspectives on the world. It has to be said. We did. Yeah. Now he got a copy of. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons from Advanced Dungeons and Dragons from his friend. Be, very, be clear about that. Yeah. Not not basic or normal Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So way back then, it came in uh, uh, three books, and he got the book uh, Dungeon Master's Guide from his friend Kesh. And uh, because we had the Prime Directive, um, which meant that only one person could have a game and. Um, Games Master yes. it, it effectively meant that we were locked out of D&D. We were locked out of D&D. Yeah. That, that him having that one book locked us out of D&D, no matter how much we wanted to play it. And I think it's fair to say that we really did want to play it, didn't we? We did, Because, yeah. you know, we, we enjoyed RuneQuest, we enjoyed Traveller, but there was a lot of advanced D&D stuff around. So yeah. White Dwarf was full of it. White yeah. Dwarf was... was End to end, advanced D and D. The the Fiend Factory was it, and all that. Most of the scenarios were for D and D. You had the character classes, so we we kind of wanted to play it. Or yeah. I, I certainly did. Um, but as you said, the Prime Directive meant that we couldn't. Once he got that, we could. We we then had to rely on him to run Dungeons and Dragons, and there was a fundamental problem, wasn't there? That all he had was Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah. He didn't have any of the other books. He didn't have the other three books. No. So when we had to do character classes, it was for character classes that were available in White Dwarf because we yes. didn't have the standard ones. We didn't have, didn't have Player's Handbook. Didn't yeah. have Player's Handbook. Yeah. And the mo- monsters, such as we encountered them, mm. were ones that came in uh, White Dwarf 
or yeah. were listed in the back. Well, they're listed in the back of Dungeon Master's <coughs> back, aren't they? But um, it doesn't really give you the special abilities particularly. It doesn't give no. you a kind of rounded um, idea of what the monsters are and what they can do. So they are there, but it's all a bit sketchy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he did. He he did try to run some games. So let's st- let's step back in time and uh, paint a picture of Simon's bedroom if we can, because that too was different, wasn't it? Because uh, as we described, our uh, bedrooms were furnished with MFI furniture. Mm. But stepping into uh, Simon's bedroom is like stepping into the forties, wasn't it? Because he had a glass cabinet um, bookcase with yes. um, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, um, some uh, miniatures from Yugoslavia. <laughs> alcohol miniatures, not alcohol. not, not role playing miniatures. <laughs> no, exactly, alcohol miniatures yeah. from Yugoslavia. So it, it, it was twelve. The rise and fall of Third Reich. <laughs> why, why did we stay in that room? This is a desperate. The, we're so desperate to play D and D that we we tolerated someone who had that in the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, and um, he used to insist on. He would sit on um, on a chair. And we would have to sit on the floor with our backs up against the radiator. Mm, yes. Um, whilst, so he had like an elevated position as he was games master. <laughs> and we were on the floor, uh, as again, as mere mortals. Mere mortals, yeah. yeah. Know your place. And when it came to um, Simon being a player of our games, he wanted to win. Yes. Yes, he did. And as a dungeon master... He wanted us to lose. <laughs> yes, which amounts to the same thing, <laughs> just from a slightly different perspective. Yeah. Yes. And so what we really wanted to do was go down a dungeon, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we wanted to, we just wanted to sort of, as innocent fools from our, with our comprehensive education, simply wanted to play D&D and be a, a wizard or a thief or a paladin yeah. or a... Whatever I wanted, and fight monsters and do, I do role playing stuff. You know, I wanted a boule to come up out of the ground, and, yes, and attack my dwarven pony. Yeah, but I wasn't allowed to have a dwarven pony. But I wasn't allowed to be a dwarf. Well, I'd be a dwarf because there wasn't <laughs> enough information in Dungeon Master's Guide. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. It does that strange feeling. But in fairness to Simon, it, it's and I think this is a this is worth commenting on about advanced D and D, as yeah. I touched on earlier. It didn't come in a box, so it it didn't come whole. So, to be fair to Simon, he had the Dungeon Master's Guide, and in a way, you could be forgiven at the tender age of 12, thinking that if I'm Dungeon Mastering D&D, that's the book to get, and that's the book I need, because I'm the Dungeon Master. It's not really true, is it? What you really needed, actually more than Dungeon Master's Guide, was Player's Handbook and Monster Manual. So, it was a kind of... It's an understandable mistake on his part that he yeah. was kind of uh, in the dark a little bit. Um, we weren't allowed to help him because the prime directive meant we couldn't look at the book necessarily. You know, no, it was, it's, no. it's, he was running it, and I think he was kind of stumbling through it, trying to make a game out of one third of the rules. And in fairness, uh, uh, Dungeon Master's Guide's the least useful bit. Doesn't yeah. sound like it on the face of it, but it is actually the least useful of the three books. I think you could run it. I think there are a few there are a few tables as saving throws in Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think you could have a better go at running the game with Player's Handbook and Monster Manual without Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes. So oddly, he had, he had the least useful book, but it seemed to him, and maybe to us at the time, that that's what you needed. And somehow he was kind of 
struggling through it, thinking, well, there's a bit about monsters here, and there's a bit about character classes here, yeah. and there's some commentary on the spells, so maybe that's what I need. And he would try and run it on that basis. And it, it just didn't work, did it? Yeah. It just didn't work because you don't have, didn't have the information. I mean, he did get the uh, Players Handbook and uh, Monster Man at a later date. He did. Uh, he quite did. a few months later. But he it did colour the type of games that we played. Yes. So yeah. the encounters that we had, and the famous one we had was... Uh, <laughs> we we didn't have dungeons, but we did have a dragon. We did have a dragon. We yeah. did. And I think we spent a, a whole evening conversing with this dragon. Yeah. And it was a vegetarian dragon because of some great deal that was struck by a wizard, mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to eat the villages anymore. And he wasn't going to try and eat us because he didn't know how to make the dice rolls for trying to eat us because <laughs> yeah. it wasn't in the rules. I <laughs> 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 think that was bad. So a clever manoeuvre to avoid any combat. Yes. He's, oh, he's not going to eat you. Is he not? Oh, no, he's not going to try and eat you. He's and, a vegetarian. <laughs> and one of the reasons why it's memorable is that... Um, the dragon had the same voice as Cliff Richard, Indeed. but no, it wasn't Cliff Richard. It was it was Eddie Large, the impressionist from the seventies, doing an impression of Cliff, of Cliff Richard. Richard. Yeah. Oh, hi, yeah, <laughs> hi, yeah. So uh, yeah, it was like that, wasn't it? For the whole evening, the whole evening, for yeah. the whole evening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, in this... and the thing, I think the thing that kept us going. Yeah, see, people, people listening will think, what on earth were you tolerating that? Kind of role-playing abuse, well, <laughs> you know, role-playing torture. But I think the thing that kept us going was the prospect, and I've come back to this, as I've said before, was the prospect that we might actually, once this, yeah. once we get rid of this Cliff Richard dragon... Yeah, the, bo- the, the boule is coming around the, the corner. Coming, the orcs are coming, the zombies <laughs> coming, something exciting is going to happen, and then we can say we're playing D&D, D&D. or Advanced D&D. Advanced D&D, whatever you want to call it. it. Yeah. We're playing D&D, we're playing that game. That everyone talks about it. So why do we playing it now? And, and we were constantly on the cusp of that sense of it's yeah. going to happen. And of course, in that game, you know, it didn't happen. But then there was another game a few weeks later, and we thought, well, here it is. This, this is it. it. You can't possibly wheel out the uh, Cliff Richard Dragon again. <laughs> it's going to have to be. You know, the Rust Monster's going to have to appear. The gelatinous cube's going to chase us. We never did. It never did. You know, I, th- I think there w- another the gelatinous cube who sounded like Val Dunica, <laughs> more likely. Or oh, Deputy Dog. <laughs> yeah. or, or anything else in there. Eddie, Eddie Large's large repertoire. repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, other, uh, the, the other adventure I remember uh, was when we faced the seven deadly sins. Do you remember that one? I do, yes. But although, but the seven, <laughs> there weren't seven because we faced Al- Avarice and Spendthrift. Yes, so we had a debate then over whether Spendthrift was one, and uh, <laughs> we spent the whole evening trying to find. I remember it's another distraction technique. <laughs> distraction technique. Yeah. He got out from his um, glass um, cabinet a great big Bible and started hunting for the seven deadly sins and where it was mentioned. Mm. And it was, it was just another uh, misdirection. There were six deadly sins, but just one of them was yeah. done twice. <laughs> he forgot He forgot pride, which I think is very telling. It yeah. is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Not that we're bitter, 30 Not years old. <laughs> you know. But it was, an odd, it was an odd odd kind of period of role-playing, because we'll say we were playing RuneQuest and Traveller in a conventional sense, and we had the rules, and we were kind of we got to grips with it. Yeah. But but there was this thing where he hadn't got the whole thing, you know, and that's because it came as books, you know. Yeah. You bought RuneQuest and you bought the game. I mean, yeah, you, you bought supplements, but you bought the game. It was in a box and you could play it. Traveller was the same. You know, you got it in a box, you could play it. 
D&D just wasn't like that. It was three books. If you didn't have all three, and they were expensive as well. Yeah, They were about, you know, they were about 10 quid each, which in those days was was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Fair to say. Yes, You could buy a house for 10 quid. You could still buy one in Bolton for 10 quid. It (laughs) goes to the Daily Telegraph. (laughs) (laughs) But but you could, you know, it was a lot of money, so it was like 30 quid when, I think, RuneQuest and Traveller were what? Were they like a tenner for the whole box? Something like that, weren't they? And that was for the whole game. So it it was, you know, three times the price. It's funny you should say about D&D, um, and it's kind of, it was ubiquitous, wasn't it, at the time, as you mm, say, it was yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know whether there was a feeling, I mean, the the price um, uh, meant that we didn't go for it. But the other bit was that there seemed to be so much stuff out there that it felt like a lot to catch up on. You know, a bit yeah. like, you know, yeah. a bit like, um, remember when uh, I tried to convince you to watch The Sopranos, mm. and you yeah. said, oh, the, the six... Yeah, seasons I can't yeah. get, and and there was that kind of feeling, wasn't there? That there's a lot out there. Where do you start? I I think that's a good point because there was that sense of of that, and it, yeah, with with games like RuneQuest and Traveller, for for us at our age coming into role playing, those games felt newer. They felt like yeah. the new kids on the block in a way, yeah, and felt more and more appealing to us. Uh, whereas, as you say, D and D was played by by older, um, say older people, you know, yeah. fifteen year olds, played by people who were a bit older. I mean, I, I remember, uh, and I've talked about the, the game Stormbringer at Games Day. Yeah, the guy running and in the lunch break, I remember the guy running the game of Stormbringer. I remember one of his friends kind of toddling along, and I'm going to chat with him, and. Um, his friend looked at the Stormringer rules and said, oh, it's good, this basic role-playing thing. It's quite good. It's a bit like RuneQuest. I, I quite like this system. He said, it's better than D&D. And this, this lad who was running the Stormringer game, he was probably about 19, 18, 19, 20, and I was, I was kind of 13. He was adamant. He said, oh, no, D&D's fantastic. It's a brilliant game. It's, it's, it's just the best role-playing game ever. Um, and, and I suppose there was that sense of loyalty. People who were a bit older than us had that sense of loyalty to it. But conversely, for us, it felt like it was their game. So it felt yes. like there was a bunch of yeah. 18, 19-year-old university students who played D&D, and us, as newcomers to it, played RuneQuest and Traveller and other stuff because there was a lot of D&D out there, and that was kind of their world, yeah. not our world. And, the, and the, the other factor, of course, is that um, Games Workshop lost the licence, so... Our real gateway into the games was through Games Workshop, yeah. wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and promoting yeah. Games Workshop mm-hmm. and knowing where to start. But that was made easier back in 1983. It was. We're going to open the box again yeah. because you are That's Judge Blythe. I am. <laughs> and I found a legal loophole. Yeah. <laughs> the Prime Directive. <laughs> you found a, a, a loophole because of this. Uh, Red Box was produced, mm. the basic rule set, uh, one, uh, Red Box. And I think there was an expert set, wasn't there? There was. There was, an, there was a basic set, which I think covered levels one to three, character levels one to three. Then there was a, an expert set that took you up to level 15. And I think there was like a, I think after that, there was a companion set for levels 15 and beyond. Which, But I mean, we, we were never fans of really, really high level D&D. No. I've always thought really high level D&D is a bit. Gets a bit stupid. Yeah. Come like superheroes rather than so fantasy this, characters. So the basic um, set allowed you to have low-level characters. Yes. 
Yeah. So just talk me through your first uh, encounter that. So you get you get in it, don't you? You get a players book and uh, mm-hmm. a rule book. I suppose what you get, um, and as you say, it was it was a legal loophole, wasn't it? It, it got yeah. round the Prime Directive because Simon ran advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, or tried to, <laughs> um, and this was was called basic Dungeons and Dragons, wasn't it? Or, well, it says basic or just Dungeons and Dragons, but you know. It had the kind of label basic D&D at times, yeah. which again is a slightly disparaging kind of thing, wasn't it? Basic rule set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I got that. Uh, and I suppose it felt a bit odd because I felt at the time, by then I was kind of an experienced, I felt I was an experienced role player was playing RuneQuest and Traveller and I think Stormbringer by then. And, you know, so it felt a bit odd not buying advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But, you know, it was a way around it. Um, but what I, I have to say, they do quite a good job with it um, mm. because it was a box set. So again, you didn't have this problem of having to buy books. You got all the rules that you needed, um, and it's it was it was a much more streamlined game. I thought, you know, yeah. it was, everything was there, you know, how to play it, um, everything that you needed. Um, it wasn't like you know the advanced books, which which were a bit of a you know, they're kind of hard work. They're not the best rule books in the world, are they? Well, we're going to work through them, aren't we? Yeah, yeah but, so. but we'll come on to those. But it was, but it was good. And you know, we we then started playing that um, at school, secondary yeah. school, in our lunchtime. We recruited yeah. uh, recruited someone. Else, Moggy. 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 Moggy, as he was called. Uh, John Morrissey. John Morrissey. Morrissey. Moggy. So of course he was Moggy. He was Moggy. Yeah, yeah, obviously. What else would you call him? <laughs> John. Anyway. Um, yeah, and we we had some good good times, and you know we played some of the modules, um, and it was probably the time when prior to that we wrote our own scenarios. But I did some of the modules. I did Curse of Xanathon, Castle Amber. I think were two yeah. that kind of spring to mind, and uh, they were very good. I remember we were pleasantly surprised, weren't they, we? How we were, good the modules were. Well, you know? I've got I've got a few really vivid memories of mm. playing. Um, you know, because of my old age, you, you kind of uh, forget, don't you, particular games. But I remember uh, Gringle's Pawn Shop. I remember the Cliff Richard Dragon. Yeah. And I remember the first game that we played of basic D&D mm. because it felt like we were playing D&D. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Although yeah. it wasn't advanced D&D, um, it was still D&D. So yeah. it was almost like the game, that, that game that was in White Dwarf, that game that everyone spoke about, we were actually playing it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I remember the adventure as well. It was one that you'd written where um, a village had this stench that was overwhelming. So it sent the adventurers out to investigate. And when we arrived there, um, we went through and slaughtered all these orcs. Mm. And they were producing They were making a curry. They were making a curry that was... Drifting over the valley, and th- and we're slaughtered for that. We're slaughtered for that. So, perfectly reasonable, and yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, at the very most, really, we should have served them a notice to improve. Yeah, for the yeah. antisocial. Yeah. That would behavior. have been a more proportionate response, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, but we're destined to be local government officers, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was only fourteen at the time, um, <laughs> but yeah, it did. It did. It felt like we were playing D and D, and it was it was a good um, it's a good set of rules, really. Yeah. I think you know people. I think people were a bit, some people a bit sniffy about it. They were, yeah. Because it was basic D&D, not advanced D&D. Simon certainly was. He was, yes. But he was sniffy about everything we did, so it <laughs> yeah. didn't matter. Um, but it, it's a bit like 
you know, the rules in basic D&D are, are more streamlined and people would be sniffing and they'd say, well, you know, but you don't have a paladin and you don't have a ranger and you don't have um, bards and you don't have monks and all that. But in a way, some, somehow, it's kind of better that you didn't because yeah. some of those character classes in D&D, in advanced D&D, were a bit daft. I mean, I always yeah. think the bard character class was stupid, yeah. you know, and the monk, warrior monk was a bit of a nonsense character class as well so in some ways by streamlining it down it, it was alright really it yeah. a bit better bowed it down to its essence yeah well let's um, pause there because we're going to open the box again mm-hmm. um, but we're just going to have a short break while we listen to at Daily Dwarf who's going to make some selections of the best articles from White Dwarf about AD&D so this is his uh, first part section 3 the White Dwarf, part one. For a neophyte dungeon master, White Dwarf was simply indispensable. It had so many great articles for AD&D, but with so many of to choose from, how do I pick a few highlights to look at? Everyone will have their own favourite. Uh, who shouted Monster Mark? And I'm bound to miss most of them out, so apologies for that. I'm going to focus on a couple of articles that meant a lot to me personally on my journey with AD&D. The first article I'd like to look at is Roger Musson's The Dungeon Architect that ran from issue 25 to 27. Three parts, all with one aim, to bring your dungeon to life. Yes, it's all about dungeons. Remember this was 1981 when all adventures happened in dungeons. Don't worry though, the advice is wide-reaching in its scope and ideas, and applicable well beyond the confines of your underground lair. The first part, the interesting dungeon, is focused on giving your dungeon a purpose. It's not just a random hole in the ground, there's a reason why it's there. So what are the key ingredients that a dungeon master needs? Simple. Characters and plot. Doesn't exactly sound revolutionary in these days of story-based RPGs, but back in those early days when the hobby was emerging from its wargaming roots, this was great advice. And Roger Musson then goes further. The PCs shouldn't be a passive bystanders to what's going on in your story, simply wandering through and accumulating loot. No, get them involved in the plot, make it about them, give them a personal stake. And what makes a good plot? A strong cast of NPCs. Roger Musson puts his NPCs into four different categories. Dungeon dignitaries, dungeon denizens, overground dignitaries and dungeon raiders. I'm not sure the categorisation is important, but... What he does show, though, is that by taking one or two simple ideas, say a notorious wizard in a bitter feud with a director of a college of magic, and then asking a series of questions like, what is the wizard planning in his lair? Does he have allies? How are the PCs linked to the good guys? And just how good are they anyway? You can quickly come up with a satisfying plot that will engage the players. Okay, it might not be Lieber or Moorcock, but it'll be the framework to hook players and motivate them to descend the depths of the earth. 
you needn't have a, everything plotted out in advance it can be revealed a bit at a time and of course the PCs are bound to surprise you and take the plot off into a direction you don't expect so you need to be flexible but ultimately you must make like Fu Manchu you must plan and you must plot part two is the constructed dungeon there's no getting away from it uh, this part is really about the underground and the physical architecture of the dungeon Roger Musson outlines a few simple techniques to transform your dungeon beyond a simple interconnected series of broom cupboards and thinking in three dimensions vaulted chambers doors at odd levels etc unusual or decorated corridors streams and lakes features such as these can all add a bit of spice again while you might not think any of these ideas are exactly groundbreaking they really helped me as a beginner dungeon master in designing dungeons with character in comparison with the dungeons i'd encountered up to that point these simple ideas suggested complexes much more intricate much more exotic in my mind once again my imagination was engaged one thing that does date the article a little is Roger Musson's predilection for getting the players lost. He lists a number of vindictive tricks and features designed to confuse the map maker. Every party still has a mapper, right? Hmm. Whilst I can see this kind of thing working once or twice, if it helps the narrative, doing it just for fun is simply going to annoy the players. The other memorable feature for me from this part is the accompanying illustration by Ian McCaig. It's not one of his greatest and it's slightly cartoony, but it suits the article perfectly. It features two vignettes. In one, a party nervously examines a well while guarding the spiral stair leading to the chamber. The other depicts a party standing on a ledge, high above a large cavern. A window in one wall shows a tantalising glimpse of a treasure hall, but the entrance to that chamber is way below the adventurers at the floor of the cavern. How did the party get down there? Those pictures really capture the magic of D&D for me, daring adventurers in pursuit of treasure in fabulous underground halls. All that's missing is a group of kobolds wandering around the corner. Finally, part three is the populated dungeon and considered some different approaches to populating all those rooms you've lovingly drew out on graph paper. Again, it shows its age a little by discussing dungeon bashing as a fallback routine for D&D in between running special adventures. While modern players might like the occasional hack and slay session, I don't imagine they view that style of play as a norm. But anyway, while Roger Musson does mention random generation as a method of signing monsters and treasure to a dungeon complex, he does discourage this approach. Rather, he encourages the dungeon master to put some thought into the process in order to avoid the creation of a zoo dungeon. The ideal is an ecological dungeon where things happen, monsters interact, etc. Whether there are PCs bumbling around or not. 
Monsters aren't hanging around in rooms just waiting for the players to try and steal their treasure. They have a reason, a purpose. The dungeon has an internal consistency. Now all this takes some thought from the dungeon master and needs tying into the plot discussed earlier, but the results are well worth it. As Roger Musson concludes, the more you can give the impression that the dungeon is a real place where things happen, things that players can become involved in, the more interesting the dungeon becomes, and it needn't have thousands of gold pieces in every room at all. So why did I pick the Dungeon Architect as a highlight? Well, the first time I read this series, I'd run a couple of published modules for my group, but the idea of designing a complete dungeon from scratch was rather daunting. And the advice in the rulebook on creating your own scenarios was fairly slim. Reading these articles, it really felt as if I'd been given an inside track on how to create and run better games. Precisely the reason why I was reading White Dwarf. The Dungeon Architect has always stuck in my mind as the article that propelled me along as a Dungeon Master. Section 4. Open the bloody box again. Welcome back, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Okay, so we're going to open the box again? Again. Again. Um, now, we've given the illusion... Uh, so far in the story of these podcasts, that in 2010 we regrouped with Eddie mm, yes. after a period of not playing since 1987. And that's not strictly true, is it? No. No. It's not strictly true because there was a period where we opened the box, see what I did there, on uh, <laughs> D&D uh, for an intense period, about a period about three years wasn't it from 2002 probably a bit no, longer 2004 i think 2004 yeah About six or seven years i think yeah really yeah yeah, yeah. it's quite a while wasn't it on and off yeah yeah it was a time we played quite regularly once yeah. a month and then became a little less regular so. yeah yeah five, yeah five or six years so this this period was probably the period where we played D the most mm. Yeah. And when we come to talk about the rules, talk about our experience of play, yeah. it's probably from this period. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, how did it come about? Well, it was a strange encounter that somebody started at my workplace and on a works night out, we, we chatted about a number of things, um, you know, films and books and, and a lot in common. And then um, on a works night out, was it a Christmas day or someone's birthday? One of those things. Um, he said to me, he looked me in the eye, and he said, um, and he was, he was slightly nervous, because I think he thought, if this goes badly, I'm going to be, you know, the office pariah. <laughs> um, he said, have you, have you ever heard of a game called D&D? Well, of course. That's all he needed to say, isn't it? <laughs> I took him under my wing. <laughs> Recruited him to the armchair adventures. <laughs> and it- I think we should say here as well is that so um, I suppose our generation is known as Generation X, and yeah. he is a he was a millennial, wasn't he? So he's a, about 10, he's a 10 12 years younger, younger than yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that kind of coloured things a little bit, didn't it? So his experience of D and D was playing with his dad, and I think we need to talk about Kevin, don't we? Maybe we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Kevin. Um, yeah, he played. He think he played it with his dad, uh, and he played. It was it was second edition D and D, wasn't it? I've yeah, second edition. Uh, and the second edition rules are, are they're much better rules. They're rewritten and rejigged, aren't they? But essentially, it's still the same game, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's still the same game with some of the daft bits cut out and some of the um, obscure bits clarified. Um, but it's still essentially like first edition D and D. Yeah, and we went to his house, didn't we? And we played. And he ran the first game. Yeah, well, but it, it was a different experience for us, I think, because um, obviously there'd been a big gap between us uh, playing. Mm. Um, you know, through our 20s, we didn't play at all, did we? Um, apart from the occasional Call of Cthulhu game. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we went into this smoke filled room. <laughs> it was like dense with smoke. And um, we started about half 10 and we started playing. And of course, it comes back to you, doesn't it? That rush, that yeah, thrill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were fighting orcs. Mm. And we really, really enjoyed it. We were back we in it. Yeah. The other different thing about it was that uh, during the game, uh, Kevin was drinking Thinkston's Old Peculiar. Yeah, we learned to... But although we were in our, what, late 30s, early 40s at the time, we learned a valuable lesson, didn't we? To not drink... And play role playing games. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very bad mixture. Because by uh, three o'clock, it was just like anarchy, wasn't it? Mm. And um, by five o'clock, uh, Kevin collapsed on the table. <laughs> he did, yeah. And yeah. had to be carried out of the room mm. uh, by yeah. his brother and yeah. wife. Not a good place that you want to see a games master, really, is it? Yeah. On reflection, the whole thing was terrible. <laughs> It was terrible, but it was um, playing. It was playing role playing, playing games yeah. again. We were back in. We were back in. It was. Out. We were back in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we overlooked all the. <laughs> we forgave him. We forgave him all that yeah. just for letting us roll funny shaped dice again. So what happened then is we had we played monthly, didn't we? And we mm. did those marathon sessions. Yes. Um, starting on Saturday. By the end of it, um, my lungs were filled with, um, you know, I could, I, yeah, you know, smoking, looking and, smoking, uh, smoking ten a day, enduring, <laughs> enduring all kinds of, uh, mm. you know, it was terrible, really. It was terrible because <laughs> the Kevin was uh, a younger version of. Uh, Simon, yes, because he wanted to win. He was uh, a power. He was a power. He gamer. was by definition a power game. Yeah, um, we came to it, and again, this is one of the things with, with D and D. I think it, it certainly those that first and second edition are games that really, really the power gamer can really yeah exploit you know to their own advantage, which, yeah. which he did. You know. Now, now, it should be said, and we'll explore this in uh, later later parts of this episode, that uh, you really like being a magic user. I do like being a magic user, yeah. But in the same way that Simon didn't understand the rules, uh, no. Kevin didn't understand the rules about magic. No, he didn't like um, anyone casting spells because no. his understanding of the rules was... And again, I, being, being fair to him, He'd played it with his dad when he was a kid, and he'd played it um, up until I think his early 20s. And he'd always played the same kind of character. So he'd played a fighter, I think. Um, so his understanding of the rules was all about combat and rolling to hit things and damage and all that kind of stuff. 
and magic really kind of through him as a games master and clerics magic in D D. So I stay awake while I talk about this. But <laughs> clerics magic. Clerics, yeah. Yeah, clerics. Um <laughs> clerics magic is quite dull and pedestrian, generally yeah. speaking, it isn't so you get to yeah. the high levels. But magic user magic in D D, although magic users are quite puny, of course, magic user spells can be quite powerful. So a sleep spell, for example. Yeah, you know, you now, can, I'm going to stop you now. You right, stop just me there, yeah, because yeah. yeah. I'm uh, you, you're on your favourite subject <laughs> here right? on my about spells, and you're, you're going to have the space to I know, talk about I know this. That. Okay. I think just to say that um, you used to get in the car and be frustrated because you were never allowed to do anything when, no. when no. you were never allowed to do anything. No. So, um, in a similar similar way, it was kind of that frustration. But however, however. We soon took over, we did. Uh, and we ended up uh, doing most of the games mastering responsibilities, didn't we? It's yeah, to we say. did. Yeah, we did. We we ran games then, and it, it, that was uh, well, that had equal frustrations because again, yeah. we had that experience then of uh, having a player who was a power gamer. Yeah, uh, and again, while Simon was a bit of a power gamer with RuneQuest, RuneQuest doesn't really allow power gaming quite as easily. You know, no. you are quite vulnerable in RuneQuest. Um, but D and D, on the other hand, you know, once you start, once you're a power gamer and you play playing a tenth level paladin, and you've kind of skewed the stats in your favour, you do become quite, yeah, know, powerful, powerful, and I th- I problematic. Think, I think for again, you allowed Kevin to be uh, a minotaur. I did. I did. I got a supplement which allowed, which had things about playing other races, and made the foolish mistake of allowing him to be a minotaur. But, but again... Why did you do that? Well, I'll tell you why I did that. <laughs> you know why I did that. Because we, we always came to role-playing from a kind of reasonable perspective, didn't we? Yeah, we, yeah. we never played role-playing to kind of win, you know. But with the power gamer, we'd never really encountered... I say Simon was a bit of a power gamer, but, but the games we played, RuneQuest... Didn't Not really, on the scale of... Didn't Kevin. really allow it. No. Travelers, the same. Traveler, yeah. Simon was a bit difficult with Traveller. But it, travel doesn't allow you to become a power gamer, whereas D&D really, really does. You know, when you get that kind of 18 strength, super strength and all that kind of stuff, you really can pose problems for a games master. And we'd never really encountered that before. So I let yeah. him be mine so rather foolishly, thinking he'd be reasonable. <laughs> and he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't. He was like a bull in a china shop, wasn't he? <laughs> Literally. Literally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, he, 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 and that was that was one of the problems, I think, with... with uh, with Kevin, it was that, but 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 it's also a problem with D and D. Yeah, which and I we'll think talk about later. Yeah. But that yeah. it's a problem with D and D. Yeah, that if you are a power gamer, that is the game to play, or at least not maybe not fifth edition. I think yeah, fifth edition might be different, but certainly like first second edition D and D. If you're a power gamer, that's the game to play because you can construct characters that are incredibly powerful and invulnerable, and it's difficult to games master without. Uh, doing a kind of you know up in the ante slightly, so you know he, he characters are playing pa- players are playing powerful characters, and as a games master, then you've got to throw increasingly powerful monsters, and it escalates into some kind of I don't know crazy yeah. bloodbath of <laughs> throwing yeah. endless dice. And... and 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 you're right, you will come on to uh, talk about this because this is uh, really as, as I said earlier. This is our key experience of uh, D&D. Mm. This is where we played 
D and D. Yeah, we played it and we played different. So I, I like being a magic user, but I played. I think I played a, a ranger. I think I played a thief. You know, so I played other character classes. You were the same. I think I played yeah. a fighter. Did you play a cleric? I did, yeah. The cleric I, managed yeah. to stay awake through the yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Casper yeah. Cruel was a cleric, if you remember, and he came to a grisly end, which we can talk about, I think. Most of your characters do, yeah. through recklessness. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that was through, it wasn't through recklessness, it kind, I kind of uh, tested the Dungeon Master's mm. um, will, because yes. he just kind of put me in a situation yeah. that I couldn't get out of. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I just submitted to it. Yeah. So, but I think what's also interesting about Kevin's games, um, and I, I'll come back to the Dungeon Master's Guide here. What I think's interesting is he he played D and D with his dad. So his dad, I think, has run games for him uh, and his brother, and I think his sister when they were young and into their teens. Um, and when you read Dungeon Master's Guide, um, it very much gives the impression. That first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, which I bet is probably what his dad was running at the time, gives the impression that the Dungeon Master is kind of an all-controlling creature, a uh, being who, who, who controls everything. What the game, what the Dungeon Master says goes, and that kind of thing. Um, which, all right, is sort of true, but I think Dungeon Master's Guide overeggs that idea a little bit. It's a little bit like a, it's like a manual for control freaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's Gary Gygax telling Dungeon Master, it's your game, you do exactly what, they'll do exactly what you say. Um, and when Kevin was running a game, it felt a bit like that. Yeah. You know? And that probably comes from the fact that his dad ran games like that. Yeah. And his dad ran games like that because the Dungeon Master's Guide sort of suggests that's how you run them. Yeah. You know? My favourite character during this period was a time when you were uh, DMing. And it was Azia Voon, the uh, yeah. magic user, mm. who used to uh, collect eyes because he believed that magic was through perception. Mm. So he would go through a dungeon and uh, remove the eyes of creatures. And, yeah, or uh, the, uh, the, the bodies, the endless bodies, the slaughter that is D&D. Yeah. <laughs> that was another aspect to it. I mean, it ever yeah. was a game where it's genocidal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get yeah. the experience points, you really got to kill a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> well... Let's uh, close the box for now, and we're going to listen to some more from uh, at Daily Dwarf, who's making the Section second part five. of the selections. Another white dwarf. The articles of white dwarf. Um, Time passes, and you're going to come back. I moved on and you're from going to basic talk a bit more about to the, the Master's Guide, okay. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. We've played AD and D a lot, and with the best will in the world, familiarity breeds um, uh, something. And uh, role-playing are the habit of turning into R-O-L-L playing. What could re-energise my group? White Dwarf to the rescue once again. Issue 75 saw the publication of the article Gamesmanship by Martin Heitch. A lacklustre title for a very thought-provoking article. All about injecting mystery back into AD&D. Martin Heitch starts with this question. Can you remember your first adventure? Mine is a very vivid memory. Even though I was the dungeon master, it was very much a shared experience. Everything seemed so real. It felt like we were all really there, descending into the void, torches glittering. We could feel the damp of the chilly dungeon walls smell the musty air, 
experienced the nervous tension as threatening noises echoed in the dark. Okay, it didn't end so well with a TPK in the hands of a group of gnolls. Let's put that down to inexperienced dungeon mastering. Martin Heitch wonders, why can't every adventure be as exciting as the first? He reasons that as players become more and more familiar with the rules, over time the mystery evaporates from the game. So here's the thing. He endorses the prime directive. Ideally, only the dungeon master should know the rules. The other players should know as little as possible, certainly nowhere near the level of the DM. Those lads in Bolton, visionaries I tell you. This will, by design, encourage the players to stay in character, minimise metagaming and so maintain the sense of mystery and adventure. Of course, for players who are already familiar with the rules of AD&D, this is more difficult to achieve. So, Martin Heitch considers a number of areas where the mystery can be injected back into the game sidestepping the prior knowledge of the players. First, he looks at the monsters. His main advice to the Dungeon Master is always relay information very much with the respect of the character's perspectives. Don't mention hit points or hit dice. It's a good idea, although I think it might be difficult in practice with players who are familiar with the rules. The best that the Dungeon Master can do here is to jump on metagaming whenever he detects it. Martin Heitch also recommends that you don't even use the monsters' names if the characters haven't encountered them before. I think this works for the more exotic monsters, but in a coherent fantasy setting, I think even low-level characters would know the names of common monsters. Seriously, this guy doesn't even know what an orc is! Is it too late to get a different fighter to our party? A good idea, though, is to put a spin on the standard monsters to keep things fresh and throw the players off guard. A umber hulk with wings? You gotta be kidding me! Next, the article discusses magic, specifically magic items. As Gary Gygax himself argued way back in issue 7, Magic items should be kept relatively rare. The acquisition of an enchanted weapon, amulet, wand, etc. should be a big deal for the characters, and not just another trinket to be chucked into the bag of holding. I like Martin Heitch's idea of items with emerging powers. The characters may think they've got the capability of an item pegged, but more significant powers become apparent later. This idea is a great way of generating adventure ideas. Bilbo's unassuming ring of invisibility, anyone? And just like the characters, magic items should also have a backstory, lifting them from the mundane to the mysterious. Dungeon masters can really let their imaginations run riot here. Go the full Vance! Finally, Martin Heitch considers the characters themselves. He thinks the characters should be mysterious to each other, 
There should be no discussion of stats or ability scores between the players. Their knowledge of each other should be purely through their shared experiences and their backstories, or at least how much of these stories the players are willing to share with each other. I'm not so sure I agree with the ideas here. Collaboration between the players encourages good role-playing, and it's a big task for the dungeon master if he has to individually manage secretive players. I've played in a few games of D&D where all the players had secrets to hide from each other. I suppose the idea was that the emerging conflict between certain players would generate a good story. But in my experience, these games often descended into a sort of fantasy RPG version of diplomacy, with everyone just out to stab each other in the back. That last part notwithstanding, I still remember gamesmanship very fondly. Again, it seemed to come along just at the right time, giving me lots of ideas to revitalise a AD&D campaign that had become a little moribund. And, if nothing else, it sent me back to reread the Dying Earth Saga. Always a great source of ideas. Section 6. Judge Blythe Rules Welcome back, Judge Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Uh, we'll give you your formal title here because you've got your judicial wig on and I've removed my rose-tinted glasses so that we move out of the area of nostalgia and into the area of mechanics and looking at rules. Now, for this one, we're going to look at the Dungeon Master's Guide, which might seem a bit perverse because, um, as we said earlier, it's not really a rule book. It's more of a supplement, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. yeah. There are some rules in it, and, and I think there are some rules that you probably can't do without, um, some of the attack matrices and tables, but but generally speaking, it is as the title suggests, more of a guide rather than rules. Yeah. Now, for people who treat this podcast as some kind of correspondence course, uh, you should be aware that Judge Blythe is using the first edition uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, and I have the uh, second edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Now, when we were playing this in the early noughties, we played kind of a hybrid between the mm. two, didn't we? Yes, so, we did, yeah. Uh, it's easy to do because they're not hugely different no, in I terms think, of the rules. I think what's um, different about the second edition is that it's a bit more fluent mm. uh, yeah. and it removes some of the tables and it's yeah. a bit more coherent to read. Yeah, not difficult. It's not to difficult. To be more coherent yeah. than the original. <laughs> so so overall, you know, taking that in hand, what, what, what are your opinions of uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide? Well, it's a strange... I... I I would say, and this may be a controversial view, that it's the weirdest book in role-playing yeah. history. It's a very, very strange book because, yes, it has some rules in, so there are rules, but the vast majority of it, you know, I'm, I think you probably strip it down to sort of a handful of pages of rules, and a lot of the rest of it is kind of guidance for games masters. I suppose as the as the title suggests. Yeah, it does say um, that on there. It does, say, it does, it does say it's a guide. It does say Dungeon Master's Guide on the front it, of it. It, to tries be fair. To, it tries to be a guide, but I would say it's a fine example of Gary Gygax getting lost. Getting lost? He gets right. lost, I think. And it does read a little bit, to me, like somebody trying to come to terms with what he's created. It's, it, it, it is a bit incoherent. Um, it rambles. 
There's all sorts of odd bits and pieces in there. And it comes across that Guy Gygax is sitting there and he's realised he's created this game called D&D where dungeon masters have to run games for people in an alternate world. And what he tries to do is cover every aspect of that alternate world. Every single aspect. So there are bits in it that are relevant. So he gives you sort of... Uh, some advice on the different spells that are in the player's handbook, how you should handle them and that kind of thing. There's magic items in there and that's great. But there's also you know, endless price lists of how much a, a small emerald would cost in gold pieces and that kind of thing. And when you read it, you think, this is a bit crazy because by, by modern standards, you know, whilst most games give, give you guidance on how to run the game and what things, how much things cost, there's a sense of well, sort of make things up. You know, you don't have to worry too much about too much detail because yeah. as a games master, it's your game. You know, play it your way. And that's very much the ethos of, of modern role-playing games. But, th- but this is very, very different. It does read like somebody groping towards trying to understand what he's created. And and he's, he's probably trying to be helpful to, to people who play it, but in a strange way, it's not very helpful because it just seems to cover every aspect and in some ways lays the law down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there are, two, there are two very good examples. Two very good examples, which I'll talk about. Um, I think are good examples. One is the assassination. There's rules uh, and guidance on uh, employing an assassin. Yeah. Um, which talks about, you know, instalments. It should be done in instalments. One payment, a down payment when you take, they take on the job. Uh, and then more, the rest of the money when they've completed it. And there's a table, there's even a table, which gives a percentage chance of the assassin that, that the players are employing, by the sound of it, yeah. um, uh, the chances of their success. Now, again, by, by modern standards, if your players decided to employ an assassin, any games master worth their salt would be rubbing their hands together and thinking, this, this is a great opportunity to have a story, they're going to have to contact an assassin in the underworld, they're going to have to go into a dangerous place, deal with a dangerous person. That's a scenario in itself, isn't it? It, it, it is, but I, I just blithely, I put it to you, <laughs> yes. that you're being unfair here. Because remember, I've got my rose-tinted glasses and I'm putting them back on there because I can't yes. see without yes. them. Back in the day, well, you, 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 you're judging it by uh, modern standards, but this absolutely. is an attempt this is an attempt yes. to codify... Yes, a, a, that's what I'm saying. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I, I am being a little bit unfair, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to what he's trying to do. I understand what he's yeah. trying to do, but it's a little bit odd reading it in a modern, with a modern sort of mindset, because yeah. it comes across as odd that you, if your players decided to contact an assassin you wouldn't turn that into a scenario. You'd look at a little table and have percentages. So it, it, I agree with you. I am being unfair, in a sense. But back in, back in the day, you see... But that, doesn't, I, but that I, doesn't stop the fact that when you read it now, it, it reads a bit. It's a bit it, weird. It, it is a bit weird, <laughs> a bit but... Weird. It is a bit weird, but I enjoy reading it. Maybe yes, because my yeah. spectacles yeah. have got the colour of pink in them. <laughs> but I do like reading it because, you know, what this book is... Uh, designed to do is to inspire, isn't it? Yeah. It's to it, it's yeah. designed for you to go away and create, go away and do yes. your own adventures. Yeah. So everything you need is in this book. So it back in the day, it may not have crossed your mind to hire an assassin. That's true. That's true. But 
having said that, um, I, I disagree slightly because right. I think the the idea that it's saying go away and create your own adventures mm, is it saying that, or is Gygax sort of saying this is the way you play D and D? Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's an element of truth in what you're saying. That yes, yeah. it is trying to codify how you play it, and I have some sympathy there. And I'm not, I'm not sort of completely attacking it for that. I'm not saying it's rubbish. No, no. What I'm saying is it's weird. No, it's it's like a, it is, it it's is like a historical. The first edition Dungeons Master's Guide is a fascinating historical document about the development of role playing because what it does, it tries to codify everything and set everything out in ways that you wouldn't necessarily do it now. Um, and I know we've not we've not talked about Player's Handbook and Monster Manual, but they sit very differently because they seem more in keeping with modern role playing. Yeah. Dungeon Master's Guide is a bit odd, um, and it's a bit like there's another there's another section which I'll I'll yeah. read because I find it quite amusing. There, there, there is a certain tone to it. There's a tone, and yeah. I'll I shall I shall I shall read. Uh, there's a, there's a brilliant example, um, and it's to do with experience points right, and okay. treasure. So in the original D and D. When you acquire gold, for every gold piece you acquire, you get an experience point. Yeah. And that always seemed a bit odd when we were playing. It seemed a bit odd. So if you get 2,000 gold pieces, you get 2,000 experience points, which helps you go up a level and become a better fighter or a better thief. Well, does it? You know, we, we used to, I think the rule, the house rule we had was that you had to spend it on training. But in yes. the original rules, you don't have to do that. If yeah. you acquire money, you get experience points. No. There's a note here, and I shall read it because I think it's hilarious and I think it sets the tone of, of the book. Note, right? players who bark at equating gold pieces to experience points should be gently but firmly reminded that in a game certain compromises must be made. Whilst it is more realistic for clerics to study holy writings, pray, chant, practice self-discipline, etc. to gain experience, it would not make a playable game. And it's that, isn't it? <laughs> Gently but firmly reminded. So the player sticks his hand up and says, uh, sorry, sorry, Mr. Dungeon Master, I, I know I've got 5,000 gold pieces and I've now gone up a level, but I've not, I've not really done much. I've just acquired a lot of money. Yeah. Um, he should be gently and firmly reminded to shut up yeah. because this is Gary Gygax's game and Gary Gygax says, shut up. Yeah. Don't question it. Well, there, might... there, is an ele- there is a strong, there is a tone there of, this well, well in my in, in my in my experience of playing D and D, I have several times been strongly but uh, firmly, strongly firmly reminded. Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, who knew that I would uh, like a handbook for megalomaniac um, in mm. such a, such a way? Who knew that I would uh, well, gravitate the, the, the towards the second it? edition though that you have in your hands is, is a very is yeah. a very different book. Yeah, I think I mean, that is more more guidance and does have a spirit of. You know, look, this is fun. Go and make things up. I think it's just first edition. Yeah, I mean, this is very this, weird. This came uh, much later, and the the unevenness of tone is kind of ironed out, isn't it? It's I, much more. And, and I'm not, and I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not being unfair. I, I, I am being a bit unfair, rather. But and, and I remember when I finally acquired the Dungeon Master's Guide from Simon. When I finally bought it off him, when yeah. the prime when he, he lost interest in role playing, and I managed to acquire <laughs> it and, and again get round the prime directive. I have to say, I spent many a happy hour flicking through the Dungeon yeah. Master's Guide and and really sort of lapping some of this up because because it was Gary Gygax who invented it, invented yeah. the game, invented role playing sort of. That was the idea, invented yeah. role playing games. 
And so you did kind of hang on his every word. Yeah. So I, I'm not, you know, I, I know what you mean at the time, and it was a different time. But but by modern standards, it's it's very odd to read it. So with that in mind, what are your three uh, favourite elements of the Dungeon Master's Guide? Well, um, the three elements I like um, is alignment. Alignment, okay. Um, I like the random character trait generator. The random character often trait. You, often okay. you get to say you like something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose the other thing that I like is the magic items. The magic items. Magic items. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, alignment then. So. Okay. Well, alignment. Alignment does appear in Player's Handbook, but in Dungeon Master's Guide, there's, there's more of the commentary on alignment. Um, and, and I think alignment is really D&D's greatest achievement. Right, okay. Because when we when we played role-playing games, when we were playing RuneQuest and Traveller, and particularly Traveller, which was commented on before, um, there was always that problem of how characters behave. How do you, as a dungeon master, as a games master, control characters who just want to do stuff that's convenient at the time? So, you know, it's convenient to now kill everyone in the room. It's convenient now to not kill everyone in the room. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Now, RuneQuest does it a little bit with cults. So if you join Hamact, you know, you have yeah, to behave yeah. in a certain way. Stormble, you have to behave in a certain way. But even in RuneQuest, you don't have to join a cult. So you can have in RuneQuest or Traveller or a lot of the other games we played, almost all the other games we played, people could behave in crazy, inconsistent ways. What alignment does brilliantly is it sort of pins a character down. If you say you are lawful good, the games master has every right to say to your character, like the player rather, you can't behave like that because you are lawful good. Yeah. And and I do think that is really, <coughs> you know, a, a really good thing about D&D. You can knock a lot of the mechanics and a lot of the rules and say that a lot of it, by modern standards, seems a bit antiquated. But alignment, I, I do like it. I think it's a really clever See, I, way. I, where I... Where I um differ here mm -hmm. is uh, I think as a player it just causes unnecessary uh, wrinkles and conflict between other players um, so you end up having like conceptual arguments of uh, <laughs> why you, can, yes. you would yeah. do something and yes. uh, another person wouldn't so yeah. you end yeah. up that kind of debate when you know you're faced with an orc that you want to kill and uh, you're mm. having that kind of theological uh, debate of where you sit on the axis of alignment. Well you do, you do. There is always that problem of alignment clashes where parties, you know, you've got the lawful good paladin and then you've got the guy who wants to be the neutral evil thief. Yeah. I, think would, and we, I remember playing a game like that where I think it was Kevin who was a paladin, yeah, um, lawful good, and his brother was uh, a neutral evil thief and they did spend a lot of time arguing. But that's, I, I suppose that's something where if, as players and as games master, you would want to kind of avoid those situations and say right from the start, look, a neutral evil thief and a paladin would just not knock around together. They just wouldn't. So stop being stupid, you know, be, yeah. be more compatible in alignments. So I know, I know where you're coming from. It can lead to those kind of clashes. But that said... You know, I used to, uh, when I used to run Traveller and certain players went on the rampage shooting everybody and everything, I often thought, you know what, I wish there was alignment in Traveller. 
Because even if you say you're evil in D&D, then you have to act evil. And that, that in itself is, is a bind, you know, yeah. so you can't be good. You know, there are times when actually in role play you want to be good uh, and, and you can't. I'm no. going to face you down now, Josh Blyder. <laughs> go on, go on. Because I have in my hand uh, the second edition rules. It's almost like we've got an alignment clash here, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> you've, got, you've got the uh, early edition, and I've got the much later edition. And yes. it's fluffier in here. Life is fluffier. Yes, so, well... Here we go. The DM should never tell a player your character can't do that because it's against his alignment. Yes, but I think there are penalties, aren't there? If you do something against your alignment, if you're a lawful good paladin, you, can you slaughter it. you slaughter all the villagers. I think there are penalties, aren't there, in terms of but your suggestion, suggestion should not be brazen. See, I I think that well a, in here it, you want. I think I gently and firmly remind you that yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not being brazen. No, no. no. So, well, it, that's true. It's fluffier, isn't it? Whereas yeah. in here, people are gently and firmly reminded constantly. <laughs> It's their choice to make, not the DMs. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I think also a games master would, would incur penalties. So if you were a lawful good cleric and you did something terrible, you might find your spells don't work. Yeah. So, yeah, you wouldn't. And it does. I think it does cover things like that in Dungeon Master's Guide. It covers that idea. Yes, you can't literally stop a player. You can't stop no. a lawful good paladin. Or let's say a lawful good cleric is a good example. Doing something that... You, know, you can't because it's a role-playing game and it's their character and that's fine. But as Games Master, you can say, well, hang on a minute, Yeah, you, you've pissed off your gods and you're not. You suddenly you find your healing spells don't work for a week. Yeah. So there is that. And I, but I do think it's a clever, it's a clever idea um, that tries to rein in characters and players and say to players, gently but firmly... <laughs> This is a person that you're playing. I think I suppose that's what I'm I suppose that's why I like it, because in all this guff in Dungeon Master's Guide, there's tables, there's statistics, there's mechanics, there's all this stuff. And a lot of it, by modern standards, doesn't feel very fluid and workable. It's quite crunchy and clunky, isn't it? And you know, yeah. thieves roll a percentage to climb a wall and then a D twenty to hit something and all that kind of stuff. So it feels quite gamey. But alignment is is a little gem of, sort of realism in a way because yeah. what it's saying is they are people. It's not just a war game. Yeah. Because I think where it come, what you got to remember is D and D comes out of, um, and I remember I think is it Lewis Pulse for once in White Dwarf, New Daily Dwarf will correct me if I'm wrong. I remember reading something where he said D and D is a war game. Yeah. And I remember reading that thinking no, it's not. Yeah. But it sort of is. But once you introduce alignment, that's the that's the point where it stops being a war game. I think that's why I like it. If you read, if you read I, this, if you read, I, I, if you read Dungeon Master's Guide, it, it could be seen as a war. It's a strategic war game. You are playing. Whilst you're playing a person, a character, you've got to acquire experience points. You've got to acquire gold. You've got to go up the levels and become more powerful. But once you introduce alignment into it. It's essentially saying you've got to do that, but within a certain, but why I'm t- I think, a I certain think, I sort think, of moral I framework, th- and that's like playing a person. <laughs> I I think you're now you're looking through the uh, rose tinted glasses <laughs> because I think in there it is more of a war game mechanic. It's um, 
pitching pe per, uh, characters against characters. So it's kind of giving you motivation yeah. of why um, you're in conflict with another thing. With orcs. With orcs. So why you want to fight. Yeah, and yeah, yeah that, that's true. That's whereas true. I think when you get to the end of the 80s, 1989, yeah. when this uh, came out and political correctness goes mad, you get <laughs> a softening of alignment and an interpretation of alignment as more character traits and yeah, that kind of thing. You, you do, you do. And, and I'm not saying that in first edition alignment is, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's a perfect um, perfect system of, no, no. of character personality. What I am, why I like it, why I've picked it, is because I think that's the, the seed for that stuff. It's like a little turning point in the game, I think. Yeah. When you read Dungeon Master's Guide, alignment is a turning point in the game that sort of sets the game off in a particular direction, which is more to do with your character, your character's motivation. I'm not saying it's perfect, I agree. It is a little bit like a war game thing where you know, yeah, if you're lawful neutral, you're directly opposed to neutral evil people or whatever, yeah. chaotic neutral rather, whatever it is, I don't know. But um, that that's, I, I agree, it's not perfect, I'm not saying it is. I don't think anything in Dungeon Master's Guide is perfect because it's kind of rudimentary in some ways and it's the origins of the game. Yeah. But I think it's that point where it kind of sets off in the direction of playing a person rather than just a load of statistics. Yeah. I think that's definitely there in Dungeon Master's Guide. And so let's move on to your second one, because that's um, related, really, isn't it? So this is the non-play character... Uh, yeah, character I, I remember. I remember us enjoying this when we used to play... When, when Simon ran games, um, because he didn't have the rest of the rules, I can remember spending many a happy hour rolling... And although we weren't, we were player characters. We I remember using it because it's all he had. Well, we didn't have any. We didn't have any. We didn't have any character generation <laughs> yeah, yeah. rules, did we? Yeah. So the only thing we had was non-player character generation. Exactly. So uh, he used that to kind of. But what, uh, create but what our I liked, what I liked about this, and again, it was something that wasn't in other games we played. So Traveller yeah. and RuneQuest, Stormbringer didn't didn't have yeah. this in it, um, and, it and it is connected. To the alignment thing. Whilst it's it's a lot of some random tables for determining the personality traits of non-player characters, but I remember what we used it for. We used it for a few of our player characters yeah, yeah. because it was quite interesting. Because I think there is a tendency in role playing that people play the same kind of character. So game in DD, you know, I like to play the wizard. I like to play the wizard, and I like to play that wizard in a particular way. Yeah. Um Aloof. Aloof, yeah. <laughs> Aloof, rude. <laughs> anyway, but, but, but what's good, we used to like rolling on this table because this table sort of challenged you a little bit because it was random. So you, want, you might naturally play, you know, the, I don't know, the sneaky thief uh, or whatever, but you might end up rolling a, on here a kind of, you know, unkempt, cheerful, drunken, Kind of character that you think, which well, is a lot like my character, a lot like your character, yeah. yeah. No, but, uh, but not like my character, so like my character, just like your character <laughs> and like your characters, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, and I think that's the thing. It's like your general tendencies here. You roll, you roll, um, you roll, you roll the d twelve and a d six, <laughs> one to twenty four. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> why, Gary? Why? Um, you know, you can be moody, suspicious, um, perceptive. You know, studious. Cruel, you know, practical joker. You know, it's like that. You roll a 20, you get practical joker. 
Now, again, that, that's something when we were starting to roll, you wouldn't think, oh, my character's a practical joke. He's going to yeah. play practical jokes on the other characters. That That's kind of fun. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing. And again, yeah, it, for, it, for some, maybe. Well, <laughs> it depends if you're the practical joker, it's fun. But I think what it's doing, it's sort of, it, again, challenging you a bit to play a character. Yes. To actually play a character. And what's strange is, whilst the other games we played back in the 80s felt more... It felt more like your character was a bit more fleshed out in some way. So in RuneQuest, the character you played felt more realistic because it didn't have character class or anything like that. Yeah. But you didn't have things for personality traits, you know. Yes. And it's it's a bit easy to say, oh, well, you don't need a table for that because you invent your character. That's you freedom yeah. to invent your own character. But sometimes it's good to roll on some tables and find you've got to play a character that you wouldn't normally play. Yes, and I think that's what this does. I, yeah. I do find it. It's kind of a little clever little idea, actually. It's, it's tucked away in there, you know. But when you, you know, you can roll dice and go right. I've got someone now. My 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 fighter now is not the kind of fighter I normally play. So where does it say on that non-play character one about? Uh, it sounds like Cliff Richard. Um, the dragon sounds like Cliff Richard. Yeah, okay. no, it's not there. <laughs> he must have made that up. Strangely, yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, number three, I forgot what you said for number three. It's right? uh, magic items, isn't it? Magic items. Yeah. Now, I have to say that magic items in the Dungeon Master's yeah. Guide is the thing I love the it's most. It's the best thing, yeah. Because, yeah. as I said, I think this book should inspire it, should make you want to play the game and do yes. stuff. And I think that they do, don't they? Yeah. Of all the things in it, you know, that they are great, the kind of, you know, some of the, the the drums of panic and the you know the cloak of uh, what's that whatever. organ? What's that organ called? Because um, we had that in a game, didn't we? The, the Heaven's organ or something in it. it kind of summoned things at random. Oh yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. I remember the deck of many things. Is that in this or is that? Yeah, in, that, that might have been on, in a different one. Yeah, Unearthed Arcana. But um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, there's an organ in there somewhere. There is an organ in there. I don't think it's in this one. But if you if you play a certain tune, mm. and it gives some rec recommendations of tunes that it could play. Oh, no, deck of, here is deck of many things. It is in Dungeon Master's Guide. Oh, you draw a deck of cards, and it's all sorts. Let of me just grab that. Um, me rustling through um, a rule book. You keep talking while I find this uh, organ. Well, I think the, um, the 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 magic items are great because in 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 many ways that's the real core of the book, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing you get in Dungeon Master's Guide that you sort of need as a Dungeon yeah, Master, yeah. magic items. Um, and they bring a lot of colour to the game because, again, compared to RuneQuest, RuneQuest didn't really have magic items. Um, and some of the magic items are just fantastic. I think there's also the rules for swords, isn't there? Like intelligent swords, like Stormbringer. Yeah. You can create a sort of equivalent of Stormbringer or Excalibur and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I know we'll, we'll talk about spells when we get on to players handbook but that that for me is the best thing about D&D is the magic yeah it does, I, it let, does let, do magic I found it now I'm just going to stop you to talk okay. about magic go on because I know you you start off on so spells magic, magic. You can't stop yeah, me can't. <laughs> because if you remember uh, back in the day when uh, Simon was running this we didn't have any spells did we because we didn't have the players handbook mm. so all the magical powers we had derived from, from items, items. Yeah, they did yeah yeah. Um, yeah so our characters were based on uh, <laughs> non-play character traits <laughs> and if we were magic users we had magic items yes I found the organ here uh, Howard's mystical organ and you play it and it's got something it, it, okay 
Um, the character can hum different ditties. Fly me to the moon, that old black magic, that old devil moon. You got me between the devil and the deep blue sea, monster mash, etc. And it gives you the it suggested powers. As people would in a pseudo-medieval <laughs> world. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone right off the magic island there. <laughs> I withdraw it. It's not one of my favourite bits. <laughs> but I think I think that's where some of the unevenness of tone comes from. Because yes. some of these came from Dragon Magazine, didn't they? Yes. So the kind yeah. of... It, it, yeah. it, it is a mishmash of, of some of the magic items are great and then some are a bit a bit silly. But, you know. Yeah. But I, I do think that these inspire things, and we have uh, mm. by when we were playing in, in the noughties, mm. um, uh, when uh, we had a certain uh, dungeon master, uh, uh, Kevin's brother, who would build his adventure around some yes. of these items. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has a very close reading of them. Yes, like you can have that first Thank edition you. back now. Yeah. Okay, so those are the three things you like the most what's the thing that you like the least in the Dungeon Master's Guide the thing I like the least um, and I think someone's already mentioned this on Twitter um, and I don't know how much notoriety this has but it, it should have some notoriety because it is pretty funny is the random dungeon generator. <laughs> um, now, I know that seems a little hypocritical because I've, I've said that a random personality trait tables I like but why don't I like a random dungeon generator because I, and I, I suppose I don't like it because it, it epitomises what's worst about Dungeon Master's Guide where it's kind of you know sort of saying I've invented this imaginative game but if you can't be bothered using your imagination roll on some tables Yeah. so what I mean, I, I might not be the most imaginative man in the world, but I think I can sort of think off the top of my head, right, it's a corridor yeah. or it's a big room. I, I, don't think, I don't think I have to roll on a table that says, you know... I like how it gives you the precise length of that corridor as well. Yeah, and, yeah uh, exactly. <laughs> yes. But you've got to apply common sense, it warns you. It says Does it? After really? common sense, in case you go off the edge of the page. Um, so you can kind of manipulate the rolls. To prevent random, you coming off your, yes, off your random, graph paper. Yeah, ran, yeah, yeah you can manip- <laughs> And then you will not bother enrolling. Yeah. He says, here you are, here's some tables, here's some, you can randomly generate a dungeon, but if it doesn't go the way you want, oh, use your imagination. Why not use your imagination <laughs> in the first place? Yeah. yeah. And it does, I think it's just a bit desperate. <laughs> this is that quality, yeah. Here we are. You roll, roll a d20, periodic check, roll a d20, one to two, continue straight. Check again in 60 feet on the same table. But you keep rolling a one, which is on and on this corridor. Even even bore yourself. <laughs> 17 stairs, see table six. All right, so if I roll 17 stairs, table six, what do I then, I then roll on? The players have fallen to sleep. I died of boredom by the time you've, by the time you've done this. But, oh, God, I can't, I can't even find table six. Where is it? Table, oh, wait, table six stairs, right. Okay, okay. what kind of stairs well, are Well, one to five, down one level, six, down two levels. Eleven, chimney, up one level. Passage continues, check again, 30 feet. <laughs> oh, okay. So, it's, it's, really, so it's, quite, it's, it's, it's quite possible just to go in a straight line forever With and a ever. lot of bad rolls, you could essentially go in a straight line and up the odd chimney, and that's it. <laughs> and everyone's fallen asleep. But, of course, if that happens, there will come a point where the graph paper will run out. And you'll have to apply common sense. You'll have to apply some common sense <laughs> and imagination. And imagination. Yeah. We wouldn't want that, would we? But I, I don't. 
I suppose I say I don't like it. I suppose it's it, it's just funny. It's yeah. funny. It's and part it's of its slightly, charm. Isn't it's it? part of its charm, but it's slightly ridiculous. It's a bit like, come on, yeah. you know, you can just invent a dungeon, can't you? But as we said earlier, maybe that's unfair. Maybe this is yeah. a guy thinking there he's sitting at home, Gary Guy gets thinking, oh, what if what if they want this? Maybe they want this kind of But I, I think part of it, uh Blythe, is um I think it had a rep for being difficult for a dungeon master. Mm. So if you were gonna take the responsibility of the dungeon master, you had to do a lot of work. Yeah. So Part of this is taking some of the heavy lifting out of yeah. dungeon mastering. So yeah. it's kind of saying, you know, don't let this put you off buying our game that we do. Yeah, because, because you can roll some dice on the night. You could do it on. There's a sense of that in Dungeon Master's Guide that it's like you can sit down on a Saturday night unprepared yeah. and roll some dice for the random dungeon and then um, roll some dice for random monsters because there's all the random monster encounter tables yeah. as well. Which I've, again, I've always t- always taken a slightly dim view of random monster encounter tables in any game, never mind D and D, because yeah. I always think games master just just give them the encounters that are good. Don't yeah. don't have a don't have an encounter table which you know you think well I hope, I hope they roll a one because it's a really good encounter. Then they don't roll a one and they get a boring encounter. Well, just just put the good encounter in. <laughs> it's all supposed to be enjoyable, isn't it? Now I know, uh, just blithely, that this is your bit. But I'm going to introduce a new section, especially for the D&D um, episode. Okay. okay. And I'm going to call it the high horse section. Okay. Oh, no. okay. And the high horse section comes back to that uh, time when we were playing uh, with uh, Kevin back in the noughties. Okay. Mm-hmm. And at that time, social media was a mere twinkle in Mark Zuckerberg's eye. You know, friends reunited with okay. the okay. You know, order of the day. Yeah. And the main method of communication uh, electronically was a thing called email. Okay. Yes. Do you remember email? I remember email. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what happened, we would have the session on a Saturday and then there would be a period of exchange of emails, indignant emails, going backwards and forwards over some incident that had occurred. Yes. No. Okay. I think I know where this is going. Okay, so what I'm going to uh, talk about is uh, something in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and that's to do with resurrection, okay, okay. and bringing characters back to life. Yes. Okay. Now, it's a cleric story. Do you think you can stay awake for that? I'll, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> so I had a, a cleric, uh, Vasper Cool, um, that I played. I, I can feel myself get welling up. It. I'm on the high horse. It's very You're, on, you're on it. <laughs> I'm on not it. ready. I'm not. Go- I'm not gone off it for the last fifteen years. So <laughs> I'm on the. Uh, and uh, what happened in this incident was uh, everybody had to leave the room except me, mm. and I was faced with some demonic creature who um, gave me a deal. Gave me a deal. I was on my last legs, and he said. That in exchange for your life, you know, you're going to you you you're on the pitch of death. Yeah, right? One hit point. One hit point yeah. left. I had one hit point left, and he said, "I will revive you mm. if you kill a member of the party." Yes. Okay. Now, using my alignment as my guide, yes, as I should. I decided that, and I said, "Right, okay." I cast a spell. You have no spells; they don't work. Um, I'll try and run away. You can't run away. He had you pinned down. Um, 
I will try and uh, barter with him and uh, have a conversation with him. That will not work. All right, then. I'll let him kill me. Okay. <laughs> Which I did. Yeah. Touche, Game Master. Yeah. I was put to the brink. Okay. Mm. And my character was killed. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, to get out of this situation, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, says, if you think you've been too deadly... It gives you a series of options yeah. to kind of revive characters. Yeah. Now, I personally take a dim view of that. Yes. I yeah. take a dim view yeah. of it. Because yeah. I don't think that resurrection should be the fallback no. for uh, bad games mastering. Bad no, I agree. I agree yeah. with you there. I'm, I'm not a fan of resurrection. Well, in my own personal circumstances, I would be <laughs> when time comes. Well, I mean in a game. No. Because I think I, I, I'm going to read the email. I find the email exchanges... <laughs> Over it. <laughs> okay. Damn, this is a D&D dust shit. Yeah. This is a D&D. It's been the most conflict-laden podcast we've done. Yeah. Be- well, what is it about D&D <laughs> brings out Western people? <laughs> it has been amicable. We've been arguing about alignment. <laughs> I'm going to read this to you. This is my email to Kevin. <laughs> we've agreed that the price... <laughs> All right. I'll start again. <laughs> It's like a courtroom drama now, isn't yeah. it? We've agreed that the primary enjoyment from D&D comes from encountering dangerous situations and getting out of them. As long as the encounter has been reasonable, conducted within the rules, and is in the spirit of the scenario, then death is an occupational hazard of the game. In the case of Vasper Cruel, I feel his death was reasonable. I didn't I didn't think it was reasonable. It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't. Reasonable. It no, wasn't. It wasn't. Tactically, I made the mistake of having too many offensive spells and not looking for self-preservation. A cardinal sin in role-playing. I could have run away from the zombies sooner. When it came to facing Carly, I was fully aware of the danger, yet I still overestimated my bargaining position. I was playing in the spirit of the character! The death was a shock, but not a surprise. And it goes on and on and on like this, Mm. saying why I didn't accept his offer of resurrection. And the reason why I didn't accept it, do you know the reason I didn't accept it? Because it was merely a tactic to introduce the concept of resurrection in the games. When we were games mastering, yes. it gave an option for his yes. power game. Yes, because you can then be killed and then come back. Yeah. Mm. That, was, that was all it is. It was a device. I, I'm still bitter about it. It was still a device. <laughs> It was introduced to you that read, point. You read that like a Conservative MP giving a statement that we caught in a compromising position. <laughs> <laughs> and then been resurrected. <laughs> like most of them are after a few years on the back benches. <laughs> I stand by it. I stand by it. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you. I take a dim view of resurrection in any game because I do think that you know, one of the best things about Stormbringer is that there's a line in Stormbringer, isn't it, that says, you know, oh, you're dead. Dead is, death is final. And it makes it makes the game interesting uh, and exciting when you think, ultimately, that's the big problem of any role-playing game, that death is death. You know? And I think my difficulty with this is that in the DM uh, DM's guide, it kind of actually encourages you to kind of use that as it a It does. Position. And I can remember reading that and thinking, and again, a second in view of it, because it, it does, it sort of like suggests that it gives the feel of like a computer game. 
Yeah. You know, like where you've got so many lives, whereas, you know, you die and then suddenly some high-level cleric puts his hand on your head and bumps your back again. Your back, you yeah. know, and I, I, no, I, I think that's... It, it creates a kind of... Uh, the, another problem with resurrection in D&D, and I think... I might be right in saying that D&D, I think, is the only game we've ever played that has resurrection in it. Yeah. Because, I mean, the Reinquest sort of does, but it's not, yeah. it's not that common. It's difficult. Um, Stormbringer certainly doesn't. Tra- travel certainly doesn't have, have resurrection in it. Um, but I think one of the problems with resurrection as well is um, the problem of how it impacts on other players. So if, if you're down in a dungeon and you die and resurrection's an option, so if the games master says, well, you know, if you take them to the local temple of healing like you did last time, you can heal them. The other players are got to cart the body out. Now, if the other players leave the body because it's inconvenient, there's that kind of bitterness then, isn't there, yeah. within the group? that You yeah. could have, my 15th level paladin could have been resurrected, but you didn't take his body out of the dungeon. Yeah. And then you've got things of other other forms of death, haven't you? So you've yeah. got, you know, being turned to stone or being disintegrated or being set on fire where... If, if the games masters, you know, put something like that against you, you can't be resurrected. So I, I think it just muddies all the waters completely. It's not just yeah. it's not just that, and it's that thing as well, isn't it? Where you know you've got a dying king who needs an heir, but why why would he? Yeah, need if, an resurre- heir? If, exactly. if resurrect if the local cleric is resurrecting some seventh level thief, why is he not resurrecting the king? Everyone will live forever, wouldn't they? Yeah. It's a real stupid. Thing resurrection in D and D. Not not a fan. Not a no. fan at all. Well, I'm going to clamber off this high horse uh, for this time. Careful, uh, you don't hurt yourself. There's no <laughs> resurrection. <laughs> don't break your neck. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that you'll be riding in on this horse next time because next time we're going to talk about the player's handbook mm-hmm. and spells. Oh, good. <laughs> Until then, <laughs> I'm sorry about that, listeners. Just prepare yourself. You've got. You know, about a month to prepare yourself. Just blithely talking about spells. Yes, it could go on a while. I think there may have been some email exchanges between me and Kevin about spells, but we'll I... leave that till next time. <laughs> Section seven, the White Dwarf, Part Three. So, two articles there that uh, wait, wait, stop, stop. You cannot cannot talk about AD&D articles in White Dwarf without covering the incredible output of Lou Pulsifer. This whole section could easily have been just an appreciation of the good doctor's work, such was his range and quality of his articles. He was there from the very beginning, with an article on D&D campaigns in issue 1. There were many highlights. The multi-part and introduction to Dungeon Dragons was perfectly pitched, great for newcomers to the game, with some salient advice to get them started. Further sage advice for Dungeon Masters was dispensed in another great series, A Guide to Dungeon Mastering. But if I had to pick one highlight that sticks in my mind above all others, it simply has to be the Necromancer, from issue 35. Character conjuring was a department that ran for a little while in the early years of White Dwarf, offering new character classes for AD&D. While there were one or two interesting new classes featured, a number were just variants on existing standards. And so in issue 29 it stopped as a regular department. 
But from the character conjuring grave, Lou Pulsifer raised the necromancer. Easily the most distinctive, evocative, and as we'll see controversial, character class to feature in White Dwarf. The necromancer is a loner, friend only to the dead and undead. Lou Pulsifer paints a detailed picture of evil, of a descent into total degradation, as the necromancer retreats from civilization to the furtive isolation of their own temple of death. He pulls no punches. To heal wounds, the necromancer must perform ritual human sacrifice. The necromancer is allowed to use all magic weapons except swords. Shame, as a certain accursed black blade might be an easier way of regaining those lost hit points. In fact, regular sacrifices are the requirement for the necromancer to maintain their spell-like abilities. I get the impression that Lou Pulsifer had a lot of fun coming up with the necromancer abilities. They have some great expressive names at higher levels, like the unholy strength of the eternally damned, or death angel's shadow, and the ineffable terror. Cracking stuff. But I'm afraid it was all too much for Don Turnbull, the managing director of TSR UK. In a letter in issue 37, he said that while he welcomed what might be called non-official additions to and extensions of the AD&D rules, he found the necromancer most distasteful, saying that it didn't belong in a game that rests on the triumph of good over evil. He simply couldn't imagine a necromancer as a member of a party of characters. This ignited quite a debate in the letters page over the next few issues. Some disliked what they saw as Don Turnbull's high-handed view on what constituted official AD&D. Many others objected to his arbitrary moral stance. They didn't see any assumed triumph of good over evil in the rules. Lou himself replied, stating that he'd encountered campaigns where evil predominated. Lou himself replied, stating that he'd encountered campaigns where evil predominated and the necromancer PC would fit right in. Ultimately, it was all about players having fun, however they prefer to play the game. Don Turnbull, though, was not for turning. He maintained that there was a good deal of evidence in the game to indicate the good guy should prevail. The necromancer clearly makes a devilish NPC. You could build a whole campaign around one as the ultimate nemesis for the players. But does it work as a player character? I have a bit of sympathy with Dom Turnbull's view, insomuch that it would be difficult to incorporate a necromancer PC into a long-term campaign. As Lou himself states, the necromancer is a loathsome recluse. As he rises in level, so his charisma gradually reduces to zero. Would such a character hang around with a party of others, however evil they might be? I'm not so sure. But I did use the necromancer in a few shorter multi-session games, 
and it was simply too tempting not to. And great fun it was too. One game in particular memorably featured a necromancer commanding a horde of zombies, plus a small squad of anti-paladins as they lay siege to a citadel. Castle Turnbull, I think it was called. Come on, who doesn't want to be the baddie every now and again? So, there you go, a few personal favourite AD&D articles from the many excellent ones that featured in The White Dwarf. I really wanted to do this subject justice. I hope I have. Please let us know your own favourites in the comments on the Armchair Adventurers blog. Next time, the scenarios. Section 8. There isn't one. It's nearly bloody over. So, that's it for the Dungeon Master's Guide. The next part of this episode, we'll look at the player's handbook. At Daily Dwarf, we'll be making his personal picks of the best D&D scenarios to appear in the magazine. I will also be letting Dude Blythe look at his spellbook. So you'll need a, a, a flask of tea and some sandwiches for that one. And brace yourselves. Expect to hear the physics of a flying elephant in that bit. I'm sure you'll all have an opinion or have been affected by some of the issues raised by this episode. And contact me at thegrognardfiles.com Or maybe you want to take up Daily Dwarf's challenge and suggest some personal alternative from White Dwarf. He's on Twitter and so am I, at the Grognard File. We have a Patreon campaign to support the podcast and we've pledged to produce a fanzine available to backers. The zine will be launched later in the year at a special grog meet in Manchester. If you want to find out more, then visit thegrognardfiles.com I want to thank David Bushel Wibble and Ty Callahan Jones for their backing. They are honorary members of the Armchair Adventurers Club. A big thank you too to Steve Rice, who gave a generous boost to his backing to get us over the Zine Hard Copies goal. Since last time, we've also had some top-rate $5 pledges from the following people. I always award the $5 plus backers with something special from the games that we cover. This time, from the Dungeon Master's Guide, Table 103, Miscellaneous Magic, I thought I'd give you a musical instrument. So, rolling a d20. Gavin Peebles, you get nine. A horn of bubbles, which uh, sounds useless, but uh, fun at bath time. Okay, and John Dawson, who's been very encouraging from the very beginning of the podcast. So he gets 17 pipes of pain. Ouch. Oh, sorry about that. Well, they're obviously uh, bagpipes. Okay, and finally for this time, Ian Brumby from Fenris Games, who is responsible for the fabulously impressive miniatures in uh, Peterson Games' Cthulhu Wars. He's got 19, Pipe of the Sewers. Well, it's always uh, useful to learn an instrument 
or at least go through the motions. Okay, thank you all for listening. Leave us a review on iTunes. And until the play's handbook, adios, amigos.